Uh, it's hard for those of us who have grown up in the last 30 or 40 years to really have any understanding of what a normal traditional culture looks like. We just expect that, uh, you know, scantily clad 25-year-old women are going to be used to sell car tires and bubble gum because that's always been the case. And uh, we just expect the TV is going to show everybody sleeping with everybody else except uh, the person that they're that they're married to, uh, because that's just what TV shows do. Uh, occasionally, uh, I'll have my bearings sort of reset. I travel, especially spending time in Muslim countries. It's always very shocking to go into a country like that, where where women are hidden, if not literally behind locked doors. They're hidden behind uh, burqas. And, uh, and there's very little advertising. And so you spend a week or two weeks in that setting, and then you re-enter uh, the West. It's, uh, it's often just, uh, it's, it just helps you understand again. I mean, in, until, you, until you get out of the water and swim in water that's cleaner, you don't understand until you come back uh, what the water we're swimming in is like. And it would be one thing, by the way, if when, when you came back into the United States, everybody was happy and every, every marriages were thriving and there were, there were signs that there, were, there was lots of intimacy happening, like children, lots of children. But you come back into a culture that's very different than that. And uh, so it's, it's just, it's interesting. It's very Orwellian right now. Uh, you know, we, we, can't, uh, we can't talk about things that were talked about 10 or 20 years ago. You can't word, use words like, I don't know, fornication or adultery. Uh, that's the, that would be a scandal. But things that were previously scandalous uh, are now part of commonplace language. And uh, we're just expected, I mean, it's just, it is the norm today to expect that, that you, would, you, would, you would live with someone or at the very least sleep with someone before you got married. I mean, how could you not do that? That only makes sense before you make such a big commitment. Uh, and so there's, living together is, is a positive step forward. It's not uh, something to be frowned upon. And nobody, nobody commits adultery anymore. That's all scarlet letter and, and Hester Prynne and hypocrisy and judgment. Today people have affairs, which are very life-giving and bold and fun and no more uh, guilt-producing than a hot fudge sundae. So uh, it's, it's just a very interesting moment in which we find ourselves. So I, I say all this realizing that it makes me sound helplessly, hopelessly uh, uncool, uh, but, and especially these California guys, um, you know, hard. But, uh, but I do that because, uh, first of all, if we want to go deep, then we have no option but to play not just offense and lean more fully into God, but also to play defense and to, uh, and to pursue holiness. And additionally, I do this because we have, uh, we have, we, we have been called to do this. And, and if we are going to move forward, uh, and we're going to use the book of Proverbs as a theme, we have all kinds of admonition to uh, to pursue righteous living. And sin is held up as something that's stupid over and over. And uh, sexual sin in particular. Solomon is writing to his, uh, to his young sons ostensibly, uh, to young men certainly. And so uh, sexual sin is a big theme in the first seven chapters. So uh, we go there. Now, just one more aside uh, before we move more generally to, to sin. Uh, 
I was a college pastor for eight years, and as a college pastor, I ended up speaking about uh, sex a great deal because it was a very popular topic on the college campus. And so I think it's generally understood in most settings that the sexual ethic that is advocated by, um, by God in the Bible, uh, by the Christian faith, is far more conservative than what is currently uh, in vogue today. So I, I would always sort of try and flip things around and be a little bit provocative by saying, well, let's just, let's just start at the beginning. Sex is God's idea, right? God is, God is the author of sex. He's the one who designed us. He created us. He, de- he designed the parts and the way they fit together, right? Pleasure is his idea, not ours. And he's not surprised by anything that happens. God is very pro-sex. As a matter of fact, one of the books that we have in Scripture, the Song of Solomon, is a celebration of erotic love. And uh, so this is... God is not a prude. God is not some old, uh, angry scold looking down out of heaven trying to find, uh, trying to find some young couple fumbling around in the back seat or find somebody looking at pornography or find some evidence of sexual sin so that he can smite somebody, whatever that even means. Uh, God is uh, for us. God loves you more than you love you. Uh, God is, is for us, and the counsel that he gives is for our best. It is, it is for our blessing, right? God gets angry at sin because sin hurts people that he loves. And so we get, we get counsel that, that, is, that is flowing out of the way he created the world, and it reflects the way the world works best. It's out of his decree, but it's also out of his design. And so we do have uh, those admonitions in Scripture. And so um, I just want to set all that in front of us. The topic is sin, uh, again, sexual sin more specifically because of the way Proverbs opens up. But uh, the goal, framing all of this in the context of this series, the, the goal is that we would move deep. I have been saying that, that we, we, there's a subtext of this whole message that we, we have to up our game. I've been arguing that culture, which is always mixed, there's good and bad in every culture, culture which is always mixed is becoming more insidious and the current is becoming faster. Consequently, uh, the things, the habits and practices, the spiritual disciplines that we've used in the past that have brought us to the place we're at right now may not be enough to even keep us where we're at. And so more of the same is at best only going to yield more of the same. If we want to go deeper, if we want to cultivate a more rich, dynamic, life-giving, joy-producing relationship with God, we're going to have to up our game. And that led into an ex- exploration of Proverbs and godly wisdom, and then uh, wisdom being God's character or godly character in action. And then we looked at discipline, which I said is where things break down. We've got to be willing to suffer early, pay in advance, to cultivate the kind of habits that are going to be life-giving, which I said come out of Jesus. And one of the things that that led to was a, a challenge that uh, you would take a tech fast. And I heard from many of you, ironically, uh, from email. I got lots of emails this week. <laughs> I went on record as saying I would not be giving up email. I would have liked to have given up email. It didn't feel like a responsible thing to do. So I heard from many of you, uh, some who found this absolute torture 
And uh, you just, you, you were very frustrated and you were counting the minutes. And others who found it to be very invigorating and, uh, and life-giving. And uh, I, I was in Portland for a while. I've done some tech fasts in the past. And so the really harsh, ugly reality uh, sort of hit me a couple years ago on this. And it's been better since then. So when I did it, it wasn't that hard. But it was odd because I was traveling. We have a TV in our basement, and it, you have to really want to watch it to go down there and turn it on. So it's never on casually. And, uh, but when you're in a hotel room, I, I'm almost always just turn on the TV because when I'm there, the TV is on, and it's on some sports channel or a news channel, and it's just backed off. So I was in Portland for a couple of days, and I didn't turn the TV on at all. And it just struck me as that's a little bit odd. But that does create more space, more opportunity, more quiet to be able to hear from God. So I hope that you will carry some of those things forward. Um, today, we're, we're going to talk about our defensive strategy. We're going to talk about saying no to sin. And I have three points that I'm making. The first one I've actually already stated. God is for you. God loves you more than you love you. God wants what's best for you, and so the counsel we get from him about sin is not coming from an angry posture, it's coming from a loving one, right? All the prohibitions about sin and sexual sin are because he wants what's best for us. There's always a grand positive behind any negative statement in the Bible, any do not do this. That's not, that's not just an arbitrary effort by God to deny us uh, life-giving pleasure. God is the most joyful being in the universe. No one has more joy than God. It is, it is at the heart of his character. He wants that for us, and so he is mapping out how life works best. The second point that I want to make is that sin is a much bigger deal than we think. It is a more complicated, nuanced, deceptive, and many-faceted issue than we understand. And I can make that point simply by noting that in the Hebrew Old Testament, there are six different uh, nouns that, that are used that are all translated by the English word sin. Six different nouns, three different verbs. In the Greek New Testament, there are five nouns, five verbs, and three adjectives. All that get translated by our English word sin. Uh, and, And that's because there's just many angles to this, many expressions of this. What they all have in common is that they all suggest that sin is is really bad, self-destructive behavior. And so the list of words, when you put it all together, it's uh, things like debt, burden, shortfall, stain, evil, offense, wicked, crooked, deceive, lawless, guilt, violation. Um, All of these words are trying to explain to us the many different angles and facets of the destructive nature of sin. Um, So... I've, I've talked about this in the past, and I've, I've tried to make the point that uh, sin runs deep within us. It corrupts everything. It holds us back. It causes a lot of pain, and it has eternal consequences. Um, for this particular message, I went back. I have a sin file 
uh, which is not nearly as interesting or as much fun as it might sound like it is. It's just a collection of, of articles or sermons or notes that I've taken on sin. And I went back and I, I in addition to sort of going back into Proverbs, I went into my sin file. And uh, I came up with, with five points that I wanted to make about this idea that sin is a bigger deal than we understand. Three of these I've made many times. If you've been here, you have heard these. But they are, they are the starting points. So the first thing we have to understand about sin is that it runs deep. It's not a flesh wound, right? Uh, we are not called sinners because we sin, right? Scripture refers to us as sinners because that's our nature, okay? We sin because we're sinners. We're not called sinners because we sin. It, it is a deep infection that we have uh, that comes from our broken heart. Consequently, sin cascades through every part of our body. Uh, it is, theologically, this is referred to as total depravity, uh, which is not utter depravity. Utter depravity would suggest that we're as bad as we can be, and that's not the case, right? No matter how bad someone is, we can imagine a scenario in which they could be worse. But, but total depravity suggests that, that imperfection, that evil, that poison, right? Whatever you want to, whatever metaphor or term you want to use— This flows through every aspect of who we are. So we are less than we could be physically and intellectually and morally and spiritually. Uh, Every aspect, emotionally, every aspect of our life has been marred, broken, malformed in some way by sin. And uh, the third point that I've made over and over is that sin is defective good. Right? It's, um, I, I generally, when I make this point, I've referred to uh, the, the delightful little fictional work by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And in The Screwtape Letters, there's this imaginary conversation taking place, a series of letters written by Screwtape, who is a senior demon, to his young nephew named Wormwood. And Wormwood is just getting started in the whole art of being a demon and trying to learn how to deceive and, and tempt people. And so Screwtape is writing letters with advice to Wormwood about how to lead people astray. And, uh, and one of the things that Screwtape mentions in, in one of his letters is he says, in spite of all our efforts, in spite of all the money that we have spent, uh, in spite of our, of our R&D department in hell, we have never been able to create anything. All we've ever been able to do is break things that the enemy made and then try and sell them as somehow being better. Okay? So the enemy, to a demon, would be God. So they said, we can't make anything. We've tried. All we can do is break good things and then try and pass them off as being better. And so in the context of sexual sin, you have what God designs, intimacy, unity, a a bonding of two lives that is total and it's life-giving in its nature. And and what what that looks like when it's broken is lust and it's pornography and it's it's affairs that are are just sort of one-dimensional by their nature. 
And so they, they try and get sold as being better. And this is why, in the end, sin can never ultimately satisfy. It, 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 can, it can for a while. It's enticing because there's this, there's this whole intrigue of being prohibited that we are just drawn to. Uh, but in the end, it takes more and more, and it returns less and less. Right? Sin, as one writer said, uh, it always takes us farther than we want to go. It keeps us longer than we want to stay, and it costs us more than we ever want to pay. Because it can't ultimately deliver what it's promising that it's going to deliver. So, in the past, when I've talked about sin, I've tried to make these points, right? It's not a flesh wound, it's very deep, and consequently it flows through every part of us, and uh, it's defective good. So, today I want to make two uh, new points, two points I have not emphasized nearly as often uh, about sin, and I think they're important to this whole idea of going deep. Two, two new things that we need to understand about sin. So, the, the first of these two is that it makes us dull and small. So sin, it, it misleads us and it, it makes us less than we are. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. So they've, they've become less than they were. Now, when I, when I think about this, there's two classic illustrations of this. And uh, they come from the two British writers and friends, Tolkien and, uh, and Lewis. So Tolkien writes this epic novel of good and evil uh, about Middle-earth back in the 20th century called The Lord of the Rings. And we know from his journals that, uh, I mean, he's writing as a Christian, and he's writing to help illustrate a number of very significant, profound truths. And one of the truths that he wanted to illustrate was that sin makes us small. And the, the illustration for this in The Lord of the Rings is the character Gollum. So Gollum is, uh, is a hobbit who stumbles upon the ring, right? The ring of power. And this ring of power represents evil in a certain particular way. So initially it's very enticing and it's very life-giving and it captures his heart. But over the years, it's taking more and more out of him. And so when we first meet Gollum, he's this dwarfish, malformed, uh, consistently unhappy, but driven uh, to try and get more of this thing that is giving nothing to him, right? And, and Tolkien was trying to say, that's what sin does to us. Now, Lewis comes at it from a slightly different angle. Again, they're friends. Tolkien is the one that led Lewis to faith in Christ. And they would get together in this uh, uh, eagle and child pub uh, in, in uh, Oxford. And they would, uh, they would read each other's writings and critique it. And, uh, and so Lewis writes a similar kind of book. And um, it, it's called The Great Divorce. In which he's, excuse, Lewis writes a book that tries to illustrate a similar point. The Great Divorce. And in The Great Divorce, there's a group of people in hell who get on a bus to go to heaven. And when they get to heaven, they don't like it. 
And uh, they don't like it because they have become so small, so light and vaporous that they just, that, that, that they can't enjoy it. They can't understand what's going on. They can't appreciate the beauty. They just can't even see it. And the comical thing that, that they first notice is that they can't walk on the grass because they, they don't weigh enough to bend down the blades of grass. And so the grass is poking their feet. And so they just, they, you know, they hate it. They hate heaven. Now, when I first read this book 35 years ago, I, was, I, was, I didn't understand it. And I was a little traumatized by this idea that people from hell go to heaven and they don't like it. Oh, what is, what is this all about? I now think it's brilliant. And I think it's brilliantly illustrating this point. Sin makes us small. It, it, it corrupts us. It degrades us. And it pulls us into this, into this death spiral. And here's the next point. It does this without us seeing it. Right? We don't understand what is happening to us. And I go back to this same passage, Ephesians 4. Uh, don't be like the Gentiles. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Or we could go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 12, where, where it says that the way of the fool makes sense to him. Right? Oh, this, no, this, is, this all works. Right? We don't even see what is happening to us as sin begins to malform us. Um, there's this mistaken notion today that you, you can't truly be educated or informed or enlightened unless you've experienced something. And, and Scripture is making exactly the opposite point. Right? Jesus is the one who can see things clearly. And he has not been polluted or corrupted or diminished by sin. There are experiences we do not want to have. They're not enlightening. They're crippling. And this is what God is trying to prevent us from. Sin, it, it, it breaks us, and we don't even see that it's doing it. There's a, uh, a classic illustration of this. It comes out of a, a, a tragic event in World War II, uh, the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, uh, July 30th, 1945, it had made a delivery. It was traveling back across the Pacific when it was hit by a, a, a torpedo, and it sunk. And there were 1,200 people on board, and immediately the, the ship sunk quickly, and uh, 300 of the, of, the, of the sailors died right away. There were 900 that went into the ocean, and they were there for four days and five nights. And... Uh, 316 of those 900 survived that time. Uh, sharks got many of them, but uh, what got a good number of them was that they drank the salt water. And so the chief medical officer is one of the ones who survived. And he said, I, I did everything I could to prevent them from drinking the salt water. He said, but once they started, there was no stopping. And, and they, they would become deluded, and they, they would become, they, they would begin to hallucinate. And he says, the, you know, the, the hot Pacific sun is beating down 
on us. We're desperately thirsty, and he says, and, and everywhere we look, there's water. And the, the thinking is, well, we can, we can do this. We can drink this. And he said, but as soon as they took the first drink, he said it was pretty much over. And he said, I would, I would physically be trying to restrain them, but there was no stopping them. And I think this is a great illustration of what sin does to us. It's like being thirsty and drinking salt water. It might appear like this is a good plan, but it actually is is a horrific plan, and it's going to lead to more of the same, which will ultimately cost us everything. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that I think Solomon is not optimistic that uh, a fool is going to be able to turn things around. I said this early on. In the book of Proverbs, when you read it over and over, you come to the conclusion that he's not very optimistic that a fool is going to be won back to the way of wisdom. So, I said there were three points. The first point is that uh, God loves you more than you love you. God loves me more than I love me, and he wants what's best. And his advice, his counsel, his, his directions about how to live and how to think about sin are the best advice we're ever going to get. Secondly, uh, sin is a bigger deal than we realize. It's deceptive and nuanced and complicated. There's so many different angles to it. And, uh, and, and we can't see it clearly because we're broken. But uh, it will pull us down. The third point uh, is that there is a solution for sin. Okay, this is, this is great news. Our culture says there are a variety of solutions to the problems that we face. One of the solutions is more education, right? The problem, we can't, we can't do what we ought to do. We can't sort of get to where we want to be. The solution in this culture is largely get another degree. Uh, the more you go to school, the smarter you'll be, and life will begin to work. Uh, there's another solution that is, that is peddled out there, which is... Uh, uh, that, you know, there are no rules. It's impossible for us to have uh, a moral problem because there's no morals. Just sort of pick and choose whatever you want to do, and that'll be fine. There's a third idea out there, similar to the second one, and that basically says, we're doing well. Oh, there are rules, but, you know, I mean, you're, you're doing well. Uh, in my sin file this week, I, I reread an article that I had clipped um, over 10 years ago, and it was an article about Richard Reed. You might remember this guy. He's a shoe bomber. And, uh, and Richard Reed, uh, who was a, a career criminal, had a long police record of, of uh, violent crimes, uh, beating people up, uh, theft, and other things. He tried to kill 197 people on a flight, American Airlines flight between uh, Paris and uh, Miami. And he tried to blow up this plane. And um, so I was reading an article about Richard Reed, and uh, the writer uh, quoted one of his friends as saying, yeah, Richard did that. But he's, quote, not a bad lad. Um, Sort of British statement here. And I'm thinking, not a bad lad. Okay, career criminal. You've been beating people senseless. You've been stealing things, and you try and kill 197 people. What, What do you have to do to actually be bad? I mean, if that's the standard, I'm feeling better about myself all the time. So there's a variety of different ways out there that that people suggest that we deal with sin. And uh, religion has its own set of answers. Religion essentially says one of two things. 
One, try harder to be good or pay your own way. Right? Do some sort of penance. Do something to make up for the mistakes that you've made. You got some low test scores, you got to do some extra credit. Uh, so that's, that's the message of religion. The gospel of Jesus Christ says something very radically different than that. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that if we will own our sin and turn to God, we will find in God grace and mercy and acceptance. I'm saying something important here. So let me, let me qualify this two ways. First of all, I'm saying if we will own our sin. Um, the gospel of Christ is not good news unless you are willing to admit that you're a sinner. Uh, many people are not. Many people want to say, I've, 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 there have been some mistakes. I've got some... I've been confused from time to time. It hasn't gone as well, perhaps, as it might have been. Um, so in, in popular parlance today, we would say, eh, mistakes were made. Mistakes have been made. It's a very innocuous, innocent-sounding thing. Because it doesn't even say that you made the mistakes. It just says, yeah, mistakes were made. Uh, the Bible doesn't, doesn't have good news for mistakers. Uh, it has good news for sinners, right? So in 1 John uh, 1, we're told that if we say we do not have sin, <laughs> then the truth is not in us and we're deceived. But if we confess our sin, right, if we own it, if we agree with God that we're broken, that we're sinners, not mistakers, but sinners, that we haven't, we haven't eaten, it's not just that we haven't always done the best thing, we haven't wanted to do the best thing, right? If we will confess that we are sinners, then God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's not about us trying harder. It's not about us trying to dumb down the the scale. It's not about any of that. It's about us turning to a God who is gracious and loving and finding in him acceptance and a way forward. It's, It's a radical message. One of the hardest things I do is try and persuade people that the good news is really that good. Everybody wants to qualify it. Everybody wants to change it somehow. But the good news is that God knows the worst about us, the absolute worst about us. The question is whether we will admit the worst about us as we turn to him and say, yes, I'm that broken, and I need that much help. I need your grace and your love and your acceptance, not because I'm lovable, but because of who you are. He's the hero. (laughs) We're not the hero in this story. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Now, one thing before I give us a chance to corporately confess uh, our sins. I want you to understand that, that, that there are some people, and I'm in these conversations from time to time, who say, well, if that's the way it works, then I, there's some sins that I'd like to commit right now, and then I'll double back later on and ask for forgiveness. And... Uh, I meet with people who say, I'm going to, and then it's often, I'm going to leave my spouse, right? I've got no reason to do this, no justifiable reason, but I found someone else, and they're, you know, they're prettier, they're richer, they're something, and so I'm going to go do this. But don't worry, I'll be back, right? I will confess this is sin later on, and I'll be back. And what I find myself saying in those situations is, maybe... Um, I know that if you truly 
confess and come back to God that he will be just. He will be gracious. He will, he will, he will meet you. But I'm not convinced that you will be back because this is, you're, you're stepping into a big dark hole. And this is deceptive. And I, what I have experienced most of the time is that you end up not wanting to come back. And you're going to head down a path that is going to take you in bad places. And so I want to be clear as we talk about uh, God's grace uh, in the context of Proverbs that, that um, we are expected, right, to play defense and to play offense. Right? We are expected to do everything that we can to be holy. Now, we're not doing this in an effort for God, so, that, so that God will love us. We're doing this fully understanding that we're broken people, but because he loves us. Out of thanks for who he is and what he's done, right? It is our, it is our default response to want to seek after him and to do the things that he sets in front of us. So in the book of Proverbs, let's just remind ourselves, there's four kinds of people, right? All four of them, all of us are going to face temptations later today, this week, right? It's going to happen. There, we, will, we will meet with desire, some of which we cannot right, righteously fulfill. A desire to be angry, a desire for lust, whatever it's going to be. We will, we will have opportunities to sin. And the naive person is going to make the wrong choice innocently, if I can say that, right? They're young. They don't understand the implications of what's going on. And this is why this is why Solomon writes to them, and in Proverbs 4, he says, get wisdom <laughs> as quickly as you can. You've got to understand the way this works. Because if you make these wrong choices, there are going to be, there's going to be pain associated with it. Right? You can be forgiven, but there's going to be pain. Then there's the fool. The fool is someone who knows what they're doing is wrong, but is going to choose to do it anyway. The mocker right, is somebody who was a fool, and now their heart has been hardened. Right? And, and they want to lead other people astray. The wise person is somebody who is going to see that temptation and hopefully going to turn and go a different direction because of the way they have been formed over time. Right? It's, it, it gets easier. Whatever we do today, it's easier to do that same thing tomorrow. So if we've said no, if we've been disciplined, if, if we've tried to suffer now so that we'll, there will be benefit later on, then you turn in a different direction and you cultivate that kind of character and life begins to work. Now, the wise person will not always say no to sin, right? We're gonna, if, if we say we have no sin, then we are, we are deceiving ourselves. So there are going to be times when we are going to choose the wrong path. But what we are told is that we can come back to God, right, and, and confess that sin. And as we do that, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Because he's just because that sin has already been paid for by Christ. It would be unjust of God to, to expect us to pay the penalty for that sin a second time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go into a time of, of uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to enter into a time of... of um, corporate confession that is interspersed with some, uh, with some music where we're going to be led through a time of, of confessing our sin and coming back to God. So let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. You love us more than we love ourselves. We, can, we cannot really even begin to understand what that means. We thank you that uh, you love us enough to give us uh, marching orders, guidelines, direction, counsel, insight into how life works and um, how life can work better. So we thank you for that. And we thank you that there is a way for sin to be dealt with and that it was dealt with by your son on the cross. We come again wanting to see ourselves more clearly. We want you to roll back the the calluses on our heart and the blinders on our eyes that have come because of sin. We can't even see ourselves accurately right now. Help us to see more of ourselves. Help us to see that in the context of your love and grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.